Welcome to the Artelligence Podcast. I'm Marion Manneker, and we're going to explore the mysteries of the global art market. Steve Lazaridis, you've been a central figure in the street art movement for the last 15 years. You've been a close friend of Banksy's and his dealer. Recently, you organized the unauthorized Banksy exhibition at Sotheby's. Thank you for taking the time to meet with me. <laughs> no, no worries. Like a good way to spend the morning. First, I wanted to ask about the rash of works that have been taken off of walls and put up for sale and the outrage that this has caused. Can you give me some perspective from the artist uh, point of view? The, that, yeah, but that thing, that, you know, I've been saying this, I think, you know, that thing about taking something off the wall, one, it's not fair. Well, it's not fair on lots of levels, but one, certainly for the artist, to never design that piece of work to be taken off the street and put under scrutiny in a gallery or a museum or someone's private home. Like these guys, when they're on the street, they're still, no matter how much money they're making, how successful they've become, most of what they're doing out on the street is illegal. And that gives them a very small time frame to put a piece of work up. Now, a lot of these guys are putting works up in probably under an hour, two hours. And that's people that are taking a long time. If it's someone like Banksy, you, you know, you're talking that may be up and gone in the space of under 10 minutes. And it's, there's a big difference between what they're painting on the street and what they're painting for public consumption. You, you know, if you're painting a painting for someone to hang in their home or to go in a museum, I think the artists spend a lot more time and effort in actually making the, the canvas of a certain quality. That may be true, but I'm not sure that's the reason they're not selling. There certainly seems to be a huge appetite for almost anything uh, that someone like Banksy makes, uh, and yet when we see them put up for sale, those sales usually aren't successful. It's because there's no, authentic there's no authentication for them. So Banksy and a lot of the other guys nowadays are doing their authentication services and getting a COA that comes with the artwork. You know, Banksy's work is not hard to replicate. My mum could do it. You, you know, you could take it. You could make a stencil of it. You could go and make it. Now, maybe in the here and now, it's not such a problem. Yeah, I know the guys that have been doing it and been trying to sell it have not been able to sell these pieces particularly well. But if you jump forward 40 or 50 years when, you know, people are dead and gone and suddenly there's no paper trail that goes with these bits of work, then suddenly you're spending hundreds of thousands of pounds on something that in 30, 40, 50 years' time it suddenly becomes almost worthless because there's no the authentication to go along with it. And let's face it, who the fuck has got the space to put a bloody great wall in their front room? It's, you know, most of the time it's just the side of a house that, that they've taken down. Quite apart from that, um, Banksy seems to have a, an incredibly strong anti-market um, stance. Uh, not just in some of the pranks he's pulled, but just his overall attitude towards the art market is one of um, disdain. Yeah, we, you know, we haven't spoken for a, for a good few years now, but if I go back to my relationship with him, he, he was never interested in the money side of it at all. I, I don't still think he, he does not I don't think he really cares what the museums think of him or what the established art world think of him. He used to, he had a great phrase to describe in his paintings back in the early days, and he described them as street souvenirs. Now, if you think about this in the cold light of day, you know, I've had this argument so many times with people about people thinking it's wrong for street artists to make art to sell. Uh, well, 
They don't get paid to work on the street. So if they're not making artwork to sell, that would then mean that the only people that can ever become street arts are the sons and daughters of the rich and famous. And it's, it's always been this thing. This is the thing that people seem genuinely shocked that artists might need to, you know, put food on the table. But Banks in particular is, you know, from the... And this is my perspective, not his. But was never, and it's never been motivated by money and the monetary gains of, of the art world. And I think, unfortunately, when you look at the contemporary art market, it seems that the only way of judging whether anyone's won or is the biggest artist is in monetary terms. So, the, you, you know, you only become taken seriously as an artist if your work sells for more than a million quid. Whereas if you're talking about the number of people that have seen your artwork, then someone like Banksy sold a million and a half books. You, you, you know, he's a worldwide phenomenon. He's probably one of the best-known artists in, in the world now. And, and I like his kind of anti-market stance nowadays. I think it fits with what he does. But There has been the suggestion, though, that he made a pile of money selling his artwork, and now that he doesn't, it gives him the luxury of uh, being above the, the market. Uh, certainly that was sort of part of the theme of his residency here in New York. He, I think he always pursued his art. His art. The, the sales really were only ever a secondary part of what he, he was doing. It's like he never had any interest in it whatsoever. It's like the sales bit really was down to like my side of things. He was just making the best show he possibly could that happened to involve, like, you know, the, his exhibitions in general were almost like, always, the, it's almost like the whole thing was a performance. You know, it was generally picked a, a, you know, a derelict location. It was organized like a rave where people wouldn't know until the last minute where and when the location was. You quite often had live animals running around, and <coughs> the the whole thing was a was a almost like a performance piece. And the the sales really were a secondary thing. Talk about that performance aspect because it, it certainly seems he is a master of publicity. I mean, he came to New York where very few people knew who he was. Maybe he was a cult figure. Maybe certain people were obsessed with him. And he left after a month on his name on everyone's lips. I mean, that's that's a talent uh, that he has. But I don't think any of this was ever is was ever engineered. I don't think we ever sat there and kind of plan this out it was so it i was describing to someone the other day if you look at what's happened to Banksy and me and lots of other people if you'd sat down and wrote a script and take it to taking it to hollywood we would have been thrown out of every single office for it being too unbelievable and it's one of those things where a lot of things he does seems to become more than the sum total of its parts and i think that's partly to do with the fact that he seems to hit a chord that resonates with the general population, which is unusual for art. You know, most people feel intimidated by it and don't feel they can access it and feel stupid because they don't understand it and everything else. Spanks seem to resonate with everyone from like a five-year-old child to a seven-year-old billionaire art collector in Ipsalite. And I think that's what happens. And, you know, the news and journalists are generally pretty lazy. You do something that has a, you know, a good visual effect with a little bit of a story and a little bit of politics in it. And suddenly you have an interesting story for people to, to run. And, you, you know, you touched on it as well. 
the advent of the internet is something that's helped this whole movement move, move along because suddenly you weren't relying on traditional galleries to show your work. Suddenly you had a gallery that was open 365 days a year, seven days a week, 24 hours a day across most of the free world where someone like Blue, who's another street artist, did a video called Mutu, yeah, that was on YouTube. It's probably now had like 12 million hits. And it's like, you, what gallery in the world could give someone that kind of exposure? I think these guys have... And if you look traditionally back into what graffiti artists always did, it was always about... Most of it was done so that they could get a photo because they knew that the piece would only last a very short period of time. So the internet's just become an extrapolation of that in things like Instagram and Twitter and YouTube mean that these guys can get what they're doing out to a vastly bigger market than they ever did before. That's great, but that doesn't bring in any money. And as you said, these guys need to earn a living. What are they doing to make money? Well, they've, they've been doing lots of different things over the years. You know, I have a shelf full of books here where, you know, a lot of these guys are self-publishing books. They're making screen prints, which is where a lot of us started from. You know, for me, as well as running the gallery, we have, like, a big screen printing operation where we're producing, manufacturing, and distributing prints for artists. In numbered series? In, in, in numbered series, yeah. And that's where Banksy started from. You, you know, we started off flogging prints for like 35 quid at the back of my car. You, you know, a signed print was 100 quid, and we couldn't sell them for shit. No, everyone was like, I'm not paying an extra 65 quid for a see-through. So these guys are making canvases, they're making prints, and it's become, you know, quite a sophisticated system for them to sell things. And the thing is, <coughs> these guys had always been selling to those big collectors, even going back to, like, 2003, 2004. A lot of very smart big collectors were buying it back then when it cost virtually nothing because they liked the imagery. So it was, it was always going into the hands of those big collectors. There's certainly ones that were much more forward-thinking, and it's going to sound bad, but the people that were buying stuff purely because they liked it. And those were the guys that were getting in early. You know, this is, I have a great story about Damien, because Damien's been a big supporter of ours for many, many years. And... I, it took him four or five phone calls of me keep putting the phone down because I just thought it was a spoof call. And, you know, there were lots of big collectors. And the funny thing for me is, certainly on the commerce side of it and seeing everything at Sotheby's, is I'd sold all of these canvases at the very beginning. Now, in the beginning, the price points were $49.99, $99.99, and $129.99. There's large swathes of that show that someone had been thrown in the back of my old Mark II Ford Escort that cost me, you know, 150 quid. And I always used to think it was great if I could drive it to the scrapyard rather than it being towed. And now it's very strange for me to see how people revere in these canvases now. The, the price has gone up on it. So it's a very strange social experiment for me to like stand back and see the change in people's perspectives about you know, when something was 50 quid and that same thing that was 50 quid might not be well worth more than £100,000. When the money came in, it kind of blew up into a bubble, I mean, along with the rest of the art market bubble and the credit bubble in 2007. Uh, and after the crash, it seems to have pulled back, leaving only 
uh, Banksy as sort of the last man standing. Is is the rest of the category beginning to? They're definitely. It's definitely starting to filter in. But it was always there. Like Sotheby's, I can't remember the date of their first sale, but it was maybe 2004, and it was then really that kickstarted the the first round of money going up. I think it sold for like 40 grand, which for us at the time was a ludicrous amount of money. So holy shit, it just sold for 40 grand, and. Um, and if you look, some of the auctioneers around the world, you'll see like a Barry McGee piece or an Ostromeos piece or a Connor Harrington piece. And it's slowly starting to filter in. But the thing I'm very happy about now is that it seems to be filtering into the, to the contemporary auctions rather than being ghettoized into its own kind of niche area. Which is what you say Bonhams did. Well, Bo Bonhams almost ruined it by doing a specific auction that was dedicated to street art. Now, the thing is that, they, you know, there's a finite amount of works that really deserve to be at auction. And then to create a whole new category for something, it, it was like the new gold rush where everybody was like, this is going back to kind of in the run-up to 2007. And basically, it just meant that there was a ton of shit artists that should have never been you should never have been allowed to pick up a paintbrush, in my opinion, let alone go to, <laughs> go to auction. They were suddenly going into auction, so you'd have some genuinely good artists shown alongside some truly, truly awful artists. And I think that's the thing that, you know, the disparity in quality that was happening at the time, and everyone was jumping on it, hoping that they'd hit the next Banksy. And um, I think what's happened since 2007 is it shook out a lot of the people that weren't good enough. And, it, you know, not just artists, but galleries and everything else. Because, you know, it suddenly went from there being maybe two or three of us worldwide that were doing this, suddenly having a plethora of street art galleries all over the world happening. In it, it, you know, and it, it did drop off for a while. Since then, it's become a less flashy market, uh, but it, it seems maybe a, a steadier one. So, yeah, the market seems to be, you know, it's a very steady growing market now. It's become much more sustainable than it was in the run-up to 2007. Even back then, we, we knew it was just this bubble that was just blowing and blowing and blowing. And I think even without the financial crisis, I think at some point it would have kind of rectified itself. And now it's, it feels like a much more sustainable natural growth to, to the whole thing. So before we talk about the unauthorized Banksy show, tell me about um, this filtering in, you know, some of these other artists that you're working with. Yeah, it's like someone like um, Connor Harrington that we've got a big show with in New York later on in the year. He's slowly risen from being an artist that started about five grand maybe seven or eight years ago, and this canvas is now going for 70,000, pounds. So these guys are starting commanding, you know, it's a very quiet scene nowadays. It's like, you know, most of, you know, people like me are very much on the fringes of, like, the, the real art world. They don't really bang on about how much stuff sells for, they don't really say who comes and buys stuff for the prices of canvases. But it's, you know, these guys are starting to command very decent prices for the canvases. You can buy a lot of stuff for £78,000. Now, this is a guy that's not even mid-career. He's still a young artist. He's in his mid-30s. What I've seemed to have noticed is that there's been a knock-on effect from the super prices that are being achieved for, you know, old masters and 
Warhols and Basquiat's, you know, this is pricing out your average billionaires now getting priced out being able to buy stuff. I think this is having a knockdown effect. It's a bit, I liken it to the property market in London where you've got, you know, you had lots of oligarchs and people coming in and buying in Chelsea. So Chelsea used to be the Denzines of the rich, but people actually lived there. Now it's the Denzines of the insanely super rich and no one lives there. What's happened is, is that everyone that wanted to live in Chelsea has now gone a bit further out and it's now had this knock-on effect right the way out where it's affecting prices from houses miles away and I think that's starting to happen to us where people are going well I really like that but there's no way I can afford it so it's starting to trickle down. But it can't be all about prices I mean this style of art this type of art is very different uh, from painting that you get uh, in a lot of galleries even contemporary pa painting uh, and I would think that buyers are interested in it because it speaks to them in a in a specific way or about a specific uh, period. But this was this was the thing. My thing about setting a gallery up was it it was a bit like when we when I was a, a kid and we set up a nightclub because no one was playing the kind of music we wanted to play. So this is the, that's the way I look at the gallery. We set up somewhere because no one was doing anything that resonated with us. What I didn't realise would happen is how much this resonated with other people. Well, that's sort of a perfect uh, transition to the unauthorised Banksy exhibition. That Banksy certainly resonates with a very broad audience uh, now, and you've put together uh, this selling exhibition at Sotheby's, which would seem to be a contradiction, uh, and yet it's been both very popular and uh, one gets the sense uh, very successful. Yeah, it's the. the the unauthorised exhibition came out. I, I was, I'd spent the last kind of six or seven months um, looking for artwork. So originally I was going to do a show at the Manege in Moscow. And then um, this has been about a, a year of going back and forth in speaking to collectors. And, you know, we'd, as soon as I'd sold a lot of the works originally, in fact, I sold quite a few of them probably three or four times. Um, so originally we, we were going to do a show there and then with the crisis in the Ukraine it was very difficult to talk collectors hand on heart to tell them their artworks would be safe um, going across to Moscow. And, um, and then S2 approached me about curating a show at S2 and I thought, do you know what, I spent all this time shying away really from doing a big Banksy show and I have all the works in my hand, this would be a good time to do it. And it, it was very interesting for me to put it together. So I was there when quite a lot of the works were created. So it was, um, it was, it was like a very um, odd school reunion, seeing all the works back together again, because these are works that you know, span a 14-year period, some of it, and none of, you know, a lot of those works had never been seen together in, in the same show. Why were you hesitant? Because we stopped working together kind of three years ago, and it kind of, I felt that just felt a bit strange about putting on a retrospective of someone else's work. And then I kind of rationalised it with the fact that most of the pieces in the show were sold. Well, all of the pieces in the show actually were sold commercially, and it's you know the client's right if they want to sell stuff. And it seemed like it would be a fun, interesting double-edged sword 
in the fact that you know you're taking it to the height of the commercial art world in a place that it really shouldn't be, a place that he doesn't belong in. I don't feel I really particularly belong either. And to take it there and provide a show that one was appealing to a group of collectors that we didn't necessarily already have, but also to create a show in somewhere that really mainly about commerce that would appeal massively to the general public. So I, I was trying to explain to Sotheby's at the time, I think they're now starting to get the realisation that this would be an incredibly popular show. All right, guys, I, I don't think you really quite understand that you're likely to get thousands of people coming through the space. And so far, I think they've had almost 10,000 people through, through the show, and it's still got almost another four weeks to run. So I'd be surprised if they have like 20-odd thousand people through the space by the time the show is finished. So there was a slight thing that really appealed to me about doing this thing that was just full of a, a myriad of paradoxes, really, about you know street art being in a gallery, it being an unauthorised exhibition, us being a gallery that has spent many years floating on the kind of outskirts of, of the art world. So, yeah, it, it seemed like a fun... And it, the, the time seemed right as well. It's like the whole kind of movement is moved on massively in the past kind of 15 20 years it's gone from when we started people saying you're you know no one's ever going to be interested this is just a fad it'll pass um you can't charge those prices how are you selling to those collectors blimey no this is never going to last those prices are way too high no one's ever going to come to a show if you don't tell them where it's going to be on until day and then we sit back and go funny that because we just sold this show and had about 10,000 people turn up so we're, we're obviously doing something right but you guys really hate it and then it's gone now to people like you know if you look at someone like Shepherd Ferry designed the Obama Hope poster this is a poster that got helped get a black man elected to president of the United States something they said would never happen and then you've got people like Ostromeos that have a big museum show happening out in Brazil. I think it happened last weekend. You've got Young Ville, a Portuguese artist that's got a museum show at the, um, in Lisbon that opens on Friday. You've got people like JR that are going all over the world doing museums. So it's suddenly it's become this thing where it's suddenly become acceptable for, to like this kind of art. That, that list you just gave is a very global group of um, artists. Uh, where, where else are we going to see uh, street art, for lack of a better term, uh, you know, bubble up? I've been looking all over the world. It's like I've, we've done stuff in Los Angeles. I've done stuff in New York. Um, I was de I desperately want to do something in Moscow just because I I love I've been going back and forward for a decade and it's just trying to find something to to do there. I went to Kazakhstan last year. I've it, it's I'm looking. I've been doing the big pop up shows here when Freeze is on for for many years now, and you know I've I've now got to the level where I think I'm getting bored of them, which must mean everyone else is. So I think if I'm going to do it, I'd like to go and do it somewhere else. Maybe Asia? There's no one from there at the moment. Like I, it's not somewhere I've gone out and done a great deal of research. I was going out to the Middle East for a while to see what was happening. For me, I find it very interesting. Like one of the reasons I've been going to Moscow is you can probably see here. 
I'm a collector of communist art. Like we're doing a show with a, a Russian artist here in a couple of weeks' time. And I think it started, for want of a better word, starting to develop a middle class, which is meaning that people can start doing art. Where I think once the breakup of the Soviet Union happened, they just went batshit crazy for the first five or six years with freedom. There was no infrastructure there. There, was, there, there were no rules, there, there was nothing. It was like you were either starving or working as a gangster. There, there weren't a great deal of choices for people. And now suddenly I'm going back in the new generation don't tend to drink that much, or really kind of, you, you know, start... There's a very vibrant kind of underground scene starting to happen. So that's kind of things I'm looking for worldwide, is to try and find little niches of things that really pique my interest. But when I was going to the Middle East, I love what the Iranian artists were doing. Now, for, for me, it was a little too conceptual for me, but for them, they were doing concept stuff because that's probably the only way they could get their message across without getting killed. And there, there were some amazing artists from like Saudi Arabia that were, you know, very critical of the petrochemical industry. And lots of kind of interesting things. But Southeast Asia is not somewhere that I spent a great deal of time kind of looking. And it tends to be that... Certain societies throw up certain artists. It's quite strange. So, you, you know, a lot of the Indian artists are very decorative and very intricate. And it's just not, you know, we've not really ever sold any work there. But I've also never looked at any artists from there because artists doesn't seem to appeal to an Indian psyche, and their artists don't appeal to to me or the people that collect the art from here. So, I'm slowly looking around. But like I said, it, it's an artist by artist basis rather than a country. Thing. But yes, we, we do have people from all around the world. We have a young Chinese artist called Dal East, who's now living out in South Africa. So we're covering most of the globe. Well, I thought that was the whole point, uh, tag as much of the universe as you possibly could. You know, the basis of the whole thing is to be the person that's up the most. You, you know, if you've someone like Frank Space Invader dedicates his whole life to putting up Space Invaders in more and more odd places. Speaking of that old school style of uh, graffiti art, whatever happened to that first generation of street artists, the graffiti guys from the 80s and 90s, the ones who spawned Keith Haring and Jean-Michel Basquiat, um, but you know, were a vibrant scene uh, all their own long before this uh, scene? Sometimes a lot of them are still going. You, you know, people like Hayes, Days, Crash, they're all still working. Then you've got slightly uh, Futura 2000, You've got people like Todd James that are still going. Like, these guys are still going. They've made good money out of what they're doing and just kept painting. They, so, they sell them out of the trunk of their car? They yeah, or, or they're doing, you, you know, the, for some reason the French are, are, are very, very um, loyal collectors to that scene. So, you know, someone like Art Coriel has always got an amazing auction each, uh, every kind of six months of graffiti stuff. And that's one of the ones that I don't mind because it seems to be a celebration of stuff rather than an exploitation of stuff. So, you know, for me, it, you know, I, I never thought in the world that I'd ever get to own a Don D. White canvas. I didn't think I'd ever be able to find one. And then some, something came up in auction there. So these guys are still doing very well. But I think what happened then was... It was almost like what's happened here in 2007. I think we were saved by the financial crisis in that you had people like Heron and Basquiat that were blowing up and then the New York art market jumped on it and started punting these guys out for hundreds of thousands of dollars. And then it was a very short-lived market that then collapsed. Yeah. And the, like, all these guys got burnt. And I think 
you know, these guys truly got exploited by, by the art world and it crashed the market very quickly. Whereas for us, it had been a, it had been a slower build-up. You know, you had what was going on in the late 70s, early 80s. Then you had a bunch of artists in the kind of mid-80s, certainly the American guys as well, mid-80s, mid-90s, the, like, yeah, Dash and Futura, and all these guys that were doing a lot of stuff with brands, sort of doing stuff with Nike and Adidas, and it, it was more of a kind of commercial angle to the work. And then you had the next generation was people like Banksy that had come along and skewed any of that kind of commercial thing. Like JR's the same. JR will do no commercial projects. Banksy in this time never worked for a brand. Like these guys are very kind of loyal to what they do. And I think then it became more sustainable in it. To, you know, it had been it had been gathering pace for four or five years before it got to the crescendo of 2007. And then it got swiped off of the knees by the credit crisis. But even through the credit crisis, we were still building the market. Okay, final question. What's next? Who, who's the next big innovator? But there's very few people that are, are true innovators within the scene. That's why, like, you, you know, Vils, the Portuguese guy, you know, this is a kid that goes around with a drill and a jackhammer, like, carving faces out on the street. You have someone like Mark Jenkins, who's a street sculpture that, you know, wraps himself in packing tape, cuts it out, puts all these weird figures out on the street. You have JR that's put in, like, vast scale photography up and all these guys get lumped into this thing as being um you know urban arts or graffiti arts and it's like they they have some of the ethos of graffiti and what they're doing what i think is now happening is i almost think that the street has now become a legitimate medium for artists to work upon so i think it's almost like doing performance sculpture painting street i think it's a different thing it's a different medium I think I think artists are starting to use the street as a medium. Well, I can't think of a better note to finish on. Steve, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you for listening to the Artelligence Podcast. Visit us at artmarketmonitor.com. 